Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. One of the things that convinces me of the Bible's truthfulness is just the way it is ahead of our time when it comes to diagnosing, prognosing the human condition. That's certainly true when we look at the first chapters of Genesis, and particularly when we look at chapter three of Genesis, when it describes the exiled human condition, when it describes what sin has done to the human condition, what we were intended to be in chapter one and two, but the reality of what we chose instead in chapter three and four and the chapters so on after that. But these little cryptic, very poetic descriptions of the human condition when it comes to when God talks to the man and the woman. The reason I keep saying the man and the woman instead of Adam and Eve is because Adam means man. Often when you read Adam, the translators had to make a choice. Is this a name or is this simply the Hebrew word for the human or human? And Eve means life. And so in some sense, it could be translated when we're reading these early chapters of Genesis. It could be a story about human and life. Human being Adam, life being Eve. And it's very much poetic when we do that. Or it could be these were their names because this is who they were when it comes to their role in the human race. We don't know. Sometimes it's determined by if there's a definite article before Adam, things like that. I think we hold that loosely in some sense. But when we look at what happened to the human condition when they thought they were embracing abundance because they got convinced by the serpent, by the dark power of evil, that this abundance of God in the garden that we read in chapter 2, all kinds of trees that were described as pleasing to the eye and good for food, and God said, you are free to eat from any of them. There's this picture of abundance of this world of big blue sky and beauty and satisfaction and delight, physical delight. And somehow they got convinced that the one tree God said don't eat from was the abundance that God was holding out on them. And so they chose scarcity. They chose the one tree and lost the abundance because Satan had inverted how they saw reality. The same thing, obviously, is what he does for us now. And chapter 3 is describing the scarcity that they embraced, thinking that they were leaving God's scarcity in his commandment and embracing abundance. The exact opposite happened. They left the abundance of God's lush shalom, God's lush provision, God's prosperity that he had for them, God's abundance. And Jesus always talked about how he came to bring abundance And so we get that picture of what Jesus sees his role as, as returning abundance to the human condition. But Adam and Eve, human and life, left abundance and embraced scarcity. And we see a description of the the scarcity that they embraced in God speaking to the man and the woman after they sinned. So in verse 16 of chapter 3, it says this, To the woman, God said, 
I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, these verses, this verse, these statements that God makes to Eve have been often abused by people as if it's a punishment of God that women have to bear and somehow justifying what we would call today toxic masculinity. That is not what this passage is saying. This passage is talking about, okay, now that you're going to be out of Eden, now that you've chosen to reject all the abundance of Eden, and now that you're going to be exiled, this is going to be the result. It's a very Romans 1-ish kind of thing. God gave them over to the futility of their own mind. God gave them over to their passions. God gave them over is the idea it says three times in Romans 1. The punishment of God, the wrath of God was simply giving them over to their own choices, their own desires that would end up destroying them. Sin is its own punishment. And that's what we're seeing in Genesis 3. God's not making it so now women are going to have pain in their childbearing. He's not making it so that their husband will rule over them. These are just the natural consequences that come when we embrace the lie of the dark power of of Satan rather than the abundance of God's provision. And so we have this whole situation here where whenever I read this verse, I think of when I was 30 years old, I had a friend who just had a baby, had her first child. And, you know, I'm kind of looking at her after she kind of recovered, barely. She's like a week later, and we're over there looking at, my wife and I are over there looking at their baby, and we're talking, and I just kind of looked at her in the eyes, and I said, did it hurt? And, and she goes, she just had this stare, glazed eyes stare looking at me, and she just said, it was like somebody took a blowtorch to my crotch. And I can't help but think about that when I think of this verse, your pains in childbearing will be very severe. What Genesis is doing is taking realities and giving them word pictures to show us a deeper reality. This That pain in childbearing is meant to do heavy lifting in describing the pain of what it will be to be a parent. And in that sense, this is describing the pain both for the man and the woman who become parents. This very severe pain is more than just the physical pain. The physical pain is a picture, the poetic picture. The physical pain of giving birth is a metaphor. It's a picture of what's going to happen now in the human condition. God is saying that that sin will make being a parent an experience that will always bring pain, even severe pain. Now, it's going to bring joy, but it's going to bring severe pain. In fact, what was originally meant to be a blessing, now the day that you have a child is the day henceforth that your life will also, with the joy also be filled with pain on a certain level, filled with worry, uncertainty, anxiety, conflict, regret, grief. The longer you're a parent, you're going to have regrets of things that you've done that were sinful to your kids. Grief at the reality of potential loss because you have you didn't treat your kid a certain way or they made a certain choice that was self-destructive. Now that sin has entered the human condition, the pain God's, God has of our sin will be the pain every parent has of the sin of their child and their own sin in the way they mistreated their child in some way, didn't treat them the way they, as they reflect back, wish they had. It's like what one thing that Tim Keller said in a talk, and he didn't come up with this. I've heard it from other sources as well, but he said it so well. No parent is ever happier than their unhappiest child. 
And I think that that's really true. But there's more to the curse. It's not just pain and childbearing. God, The second part that God foretells is not just the pain in the parent-child relationship, but pain in the husband-wife relationship. And again, this is not God punishing, but God foretelling what sin is going to do. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Remember, before sin entered the human condition, the last verse of Genesis 2 said, right before the verse of chapter 3 that said, now the serpent was more cunning than all the creatures God had made, the last verse said, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, felt no shame. And that's describing something that was lost now. Now naked and felt no shame has been replaced by the deeply damaging realities of sin. I talked about that in a previous episode. But the Hebrew term here translated desire, your desire will be for your husband, is rarely found in the Old Testament. Just a couple other places. And it's weird because one of the places it's found is in the next chapter when it talks about the desire of sin. It desires to have you but you must master it. This desire is not a desire for something. It's a desire against something. And so what God is saying is that sin of rebellion against God and God's abundance will have disastrous consequences for the marriage relationship. And this is in a general sense, a generalization. And again, both the man and the woman all experience all of these things to some degree. It's not just centered on the woman. But in particular, God is saying, here's what's going to happen because of the reality of the differences of gender and sex. The woman will have a sinful desire to be opposed to her husband and discontented with him in some way. In other words, one of the things a woman's going to have to fight in the marriage relationship is her own discontentedness with her husband. Because the husband's going to have a lot of failures. He's going to disappoint in many ways on a multiple levels. And one of the things that's going to have to be now, instead of being naked, vulnerable, exposed, and, and felt no shame, having complete trust, no fear of rejection, that's going to be replaced by constant rejection, constant discontentment. And not again, this is not a curse upon our relationship as a married couple. It's just the result of what sin's going to do in the human condition now. But the, the man will also have his dysfunction in this. Again, these are generalizations, not true for everybody all the time, just a generalization the Bible's giving of the human condition now, is particularly in the marriage relationship. The man will abandon his God-given role of, of being loving and caring and cherishing and respecting his wife. And that's going to become now instead this selfish response of, controlling and being harsh and oppressive. Again, the idea of the of the toxic side of the masculinity, the dark side of masculinity when it's gone bad is going to describe in many ways the husband-wife relationship. And I just think this passage has such ancient wisdom here. Far from seeing the husband ruling over his wife as a good thing, from the very third page of the Bible, it's seeing it as a bad thing, a result of the deception of Satan upon the human condition. The Bible's so far ahead of us in describing what has gone wrong in relationships and we do it a disservice when we see this verse as some sort of prescription rather than just simply a description of what's going to happen as a result of sin. Sin always perverts our closest relationships by constantly driving us towards selfishness. 
one way or the other, either in discontentedness or in domination and controlling people, manipulating people. And that results in just the typically destructive pattern in marriages and in all relationships, but in marriages of husband and wife manipulating each other in order to be in control in the various ways that they find to manipulate. Then God speaks to the man in verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife. Now, again, he's not saying your sin is listening to your wife, but rather because you chose deception with her is the idea there. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So you have this whole thing of God speaking to the man, the consequences that are going to result from sin. Uh, maybe I should read verse 23 as well. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So you have this whole thing where in verse 15, it says God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to cultivate it, to take care of it. But now they're going to be expelled from Eden and they're going to have to eat the, the plants of the field. So outside of Eden were thorns and thistles and dust and death, and they're being banished to that land and away from the land where there's every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food and also the tree of life. Now they have to go out and work for their food. It's going to be hard because this land is thorns and thistles and dust, and they're going to return to the dust as well themselves. The man will no longer live by the garden's abundance. The punishment is not work. The punishment is being kicked out of the garden where work was fulfilling and it was in the garden without the thorns and the thistles. You had the stream of God. You had the trees that were pleasing to the eye. You had the tree of life. These are all poetic pictures, of course. But the hardship and frustration that will accompany work is now going to have some futility to it because it's going to be work by the sweat of your brow and then you just simply become dust and die in the death of dust. God formed the man in some land outside the garden and then he transplanted him into the garden of Eden to work and to cultivate it and keep it. And he commissioned him and his wife to spread Eden throughout the world, to multiply, to have dominion, to fill the earth which means to fill the rest of the earth with the blessings of Eden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, when the human and life sinned, God removed them from working the garden of Eden and banished them to work the ground from which they had been taken, a land that was not Eden yet. Eden would be a distant memory now in the human condition, in humanity, that everyone has a longing for in their soul. As it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in the heart of everyone, and yet we cannot fathom what God is doing in this world. But the world is now confusing. The world is now full of scarcity and suffering because of sin, even though we have this longing in our memory of, of Eden. 
Now humanity's physical body will return to the ground. It will die and decay and actually become part of the earth itself again instead of ruling over the earth and caring for and blessing the earth. This is a crucial point to the Bible story of what happened to creation because of human sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. I don't think it's that God is cursing the ground. I think that the ground is cursed because it's not going to be able to become Eden and cared for by man and woman in the way God intended us in his image to care for and continue God's work of creation over the earth. It's now in a, an upholding pattern. And the New Testament teaches this in the book of Romans. Romans 8.19 says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. And it says this little thing, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, I think that's the idea that that's us, that we were over creation. We were given the rule over creation by God. And we chose by our own will to disobey God. And that is what caused the frustration of creation. Eden didn't get to spread throughout the earth. And so now creation is in this bad part of the story. So it says the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Now creation's hoping in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Remember the garden of Eden. You are free to eat from any tree, all these trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food, you are free. And so Paul's bringing that idea back up that creation will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When we are in God's story, that's abundance. When we are in God's story, that's glory and freedom and abundance and creation is going to be brought back into that state when we are brought back into that state through the resurrection when Christ returns. So it goes on to say, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, I think Paul's picking up this idea of, of Genesis chapter 3, and in pain you will bear children, your childbirth your pains in your childbirth will be very severe. He's picking up that poetic language and he's even applying it to all creation. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, even now. That's the story we're in. Not only so, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So here's here's what salvation is, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of creation, the restoration of creation, for in this hope we were saved. Salvation is not believing in Jesus so we can have our sins forgiven and we die, go to heaven. That's not the story of the Bible. That's not the story your life is in. That's been some imitation story that's gotten you off track because nobody's attracted to that story. The real story is one of being brought back into the freedom and glory of the children of God in a world that has abundance represented by the poetic trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food, and you are free to eat from any tree in the garden except that one right over there. 
This abundance, scarcity is right over there, but abundance is in the will of God. And Satan somehow convinces us that what is truly scarcity is abundance, and what is truly abundance is scarcity. That God is holding out, that his will for us is a lack of joy, a lack of fun, a lack of pleasing to the eye and good for food, and that his will, Satan's will, is what we really want. And the exact opposite is true. The story that we're in is still being fooled by the serpent's cunning. And what we have is this story now that Christ is bringing back the Garden of Eden. He's bringing back the freedom and glory of the children of God and the restoration of creation itself. For in this hope we were saved, the New Testament says. The redemption of our bodies, the redemption of creation itself. And it goes all the way back. That reality goes all the way back to this third page of the Bible. Isn't the Bible amazing that it just has always been way ahead of understanding the condition our life is in, the longings of our heart. And it's the only story that has this reality of the brokenness of the human condition and the realities that go with that, the painful realities that go with that, the dysfunctional realities that go with that. It's the only narrative that explains how this world has this beauty and glory to it, and yet it's killing us. It's always got this problem that we're not even able to interact with creation in a symbiotic way like we know we should. We have this memory of Eden, but we're, we're, we're exiled into the thorns and thistles and dust and death. And yet the Bible has this story that's, that's not cynical. It has this story that brings back the redemption of our bodies, brings back the restoration of creation. That's why we have this longing for beauty and longing for a symbiotic relationship with creation, with animals, with creation, because that's what we were created to do and not have this pain in relationships and not have this dysfunction in the futility of our work, but to be able to work in a way that causes flourishing and be able to work in a way that has the power of being those who are the children of God. Just like Jesus had the power to calm a storm and all these kinds of things, the power of being truly a child of God has that kind of picture to it when we rule over creation and care for God's creation as God intended us to do. God doesn't just speak to the man and the woman, though. He speaks also to the serpent, but really he's speaking to Satan, the devil, the dark power behind, represented by the serpent. And so he says in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now the Hebrew word here for serpent is also the Hebrew word for snake. And it's also a Hebrew word that means, like we talked about before, it has more supernatural elements to it. And But God's judgment upon Satan here is conveyed figuratively. Again, these are all literal things that are given poetic, picturesque, imaginary. They do heavy lifting kind of thing. And so the snake is conveyed figuratively. The snake's writhing on its belly and eating 
dust, poetically, so to speak. That's describing now what God is doing to Satan. Some people say this is actually the fall of Satan. There really is nothing in the Bible that says Satan fell before this. This could be the fall of Satan where he is in the garden and he, because he's jealous of God's plan for humanity, pulls this, destroys humanity, destroys the world, and God is judging Satan here and using the snake as a metaphor for his judgment. Again, this is a poetic picture that depicts a deeper reality. We're not really literally thinking of this as a curse upon the bodies of snakes. That'd be too literalistic and and is missing the whole point of the passage. This is God's judgment upon the dark powers of evil, and his assured victory that God will bring against them. Notice what God says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now notice the two singular pronouns here that refer to the woman's offspring. Her offspring is not just a plurality, not the collective of descendants, but a single human male. He he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is an amazing thing here in the third chapter of the Bible. This verse promises the coming of a human male, the offspring of the woman who will defeat the serpent, this dark power that used the serpent as its mouthpiece or is represented by the serpent in in the garden in a struggle that is going to be this enmity. It's going to be a struggle, but this, this male offspring will defeat him at his own cost. Think of the snake striking the heel of someone and killing them. That's going to happen to this human male. And it's things like this that make me so amazed by the Bible. Here on the third page of the Bible, so to speak, chapter 3, again, the whole Bible written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And yet here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you sort of have a cryptic foreshadowing of the rest of the story of the entire Bible. Here in the third chapter of the Bible, this offspring of the woman, this seed, what's called a seed of promise, this offspring, this promised seed of the woman, this offspring of the woman is promised to destroy the devil and all his works, but it will be at his own cost. This is, again, a prophecy of Jesus coming in the Bible. This Bible is one story that leads to Jesus, that's about Jesus. And as the book of Genesis progresses, and again, I think this is beyond the author's even knowledge of this, because God is going to tell a bigger story than just merely the life of Moses and something Moses could possibly understand. And, and But as the book of Genesis progresses, the line of this offspring of the woman is traced all throughout the chapters that follow through thousands of years, all the way to Abraham. And it says all throughout, they had other sons and daughters, but that, that they don't even get named. But the name of the one child, and then the descendant of that child, and then the descendant of that child, that's followed all the way through Genesis until we get to Abraham in chapter 12, where God promises Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Specifically in Genesis even twenty two eighteen, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then in the Old Testament books that follow, 
the line of this offspring from Abraham is traced all the way from Abraham through a thousand more years to David. And then we follow the rest of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, we see how God's promise of the offspring of the woman is traced all the way from David. And then through Mary, the offspring of the woman, it is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. And what's promised in this verse, Genesis 3.15, poetically speaking, cryptically speaking, you kind of have to only see it after the story has been fulfilled. It's not really something you could foretell what would happen, but you can notice it after the fact. But poetically speaking, metaphorically speaking, the promise is that Satan will strike the heel, but that this human will have some kind of supernatural power to turn and strike Satan's head in a decisive victory. Of course, the striking of the heel came by the crucifixion of Jesus. But that striking of, of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, turned out to be God's plan all along, his provision, his substitution for our death. The death that he said to Adam, you will certainly die the day you eat of it, is now taken upon this offspring of the woman, and he breaks through the other side of death by rising from the dead. And the story unfolds that we see this bruising of his heel not as an ultimate defeat, because on the third day he, he rises from the dead and defeats death and defeats the hold that the devil has on the human race and the world as a result. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he struck what would be the fatal blow to Satan's power of death over humanity and the earth forever. Jesus is the first of a restored earth and a restored humanity. That's why the New Testament has verses like this in, in 1 John 3, 8, where it says the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's going all the way back to Genesis 3, 15 and fulfilling that promise. Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, this, this Son of God, this seed of the offspring of the woman, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus has defeated death. He's defeated the hold that the devil brought upon the human race in the garden that day. And he's defeated, therefore, the hold that he has on all the earth because we've been given charge over the earth and we have been cast out of Eden. Eden is no longer going to fill the earth. It's going to be just thorns and thistles and dust and death. And Satan thought he destroyed this grandeur plan of God. But Jesus came as the true human the offspring of the woman, and has taken back God's original plan in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So again, this makes a lot more sense now out of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, verses like Revelation 2, 7, where Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That Jesus is saying, look, if you are faithful to me, I will bring you back to the promise of Eden. I will bring you back to the abundance of Eden. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
I came that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is bringing us back into the abundance of Eden. The last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22, verse 2 says, again, from this river, on each side of the river that flows from the throne of God, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Jesus is bringing back Eden, bringing back plan A, bringing back Genesis 1, 26. We've been created in God's image to rule over and care for his creation as his image bearers. We've been restored to the image of God by being restored to the image of Christ in his resurrection. Again, I'm amazed at just how this consistently is the larger story of the Bible. And when I read it, it just makes me want to worship God, to pray, oh God, you have all along known this story. You have been surprised by nothing. The minute humanity sinned, you already had the plan, the plan of your offspring of the woman who would experience a striking of the heel and die, but decisively give the blow to death itself and to the power of the evil one. This is the story, and I don't understand all the reasons why this story has to go on for so long, but you do. You're the God that created this entire universe. I'm not going to understand all the intricacies of your eternal plan. You're the God who inhabits eternity, and you see how everything fits into this eternal story. And so I trust you. I trust the one who has always known what you're going to do to bring back your abundance to humanity, your abundance to this earth. And I want to be in that story. I want to trust you for the abundance of joy and the abundance of everything that is pleasing to the eye and good for food and everything that means poetically of how you created me to be satisfied in your world, in your presence, with your delights, thinking of all the verses in the Psalms that talk about eating from the, the abundance of your table and drinking from the river of your delights. These pictures in the Bible of what you truly will for me, the abundance you will for me in your commandments, in your will. I want your will for my life. Scarcity is outside of your will. Abundance is in your will. Outside your will, there is thorns and thistles and dust and death and scarcity. What looks like abundance of freedom of choice is slavery to scarcity, slavery to pain and dysfunction and manipulation, fear, rejection, shame, the absence of abundant life, the absence of abundant joy. But in your will, there is abundant joy and abundant life, even if it means suffering now, even if it means pains now and certain realities of living in the thorns and thistles and dust, ultimately death, death will not have the last word. The offspring of the woman has defeated death and I will rise from the dead and I will see you with my own eyes, with my own new body, the resurrection, just like Jesus, my body transformed from death to life, transformed from shame to glory, transformed from weakness to power, transformed from dust to living a life in an enchanted world of supernatural power and beauty and glory and joy. 
Your scripture says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what you have prepared for those who love you. So I want to love you. I want to cultivate a heart of love for you. Cultivate a heart of love for your word, love for your commandments to me that are life, provision, protection, love to follow your Holy Spirit and to listen to the word of your Holy Spirit in my life and to become intimate with you through your Holy Spirit that prompts me to worship you, prompts me to live in your glory now, prompts me to live in your story now and to obey you rather than the the lies and deception that inverts scarcity and abundance, the lies of the devil that tells me abundance is over here and scarcity is in your will when the opposite, the exact opposite is the truth. And so I present my body, I present my life to you to obey you as my king who returns me to abundance and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in your bigger story. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.